Give a moment for the intersection to clear. There was a traffic jam in the parking lot this morning. Just before Sunday school, I was had my I parked over at the office and then I moved my car over here. I had to wait for about ten cars to go by right in, in the parking lot. Everybody coming in all at the same time. It was good to see you all here before nine o'clock. That's good. Well, if, if you were here, it was good to see you here before 9 o'clock. Well, we are in the Gospel of Luke, and uh, here in these first few weeks, we have done some introductory things. We've, we've talked about Luke in general. We've talked about Luke, the writer. We have talked about the Gospels of the New Testament, uh, the, the fact that God really created a new kind of literature to accomplish his work of sharing with us the truths that God wanted us to have. And tonight our attention is going to be turned to Luke's genealogy of Christ, which occurs in Luke chapter 3. And let's take a look at it quickly, and then I'm going to take a detour uh, to come back to it. And I hope I get back to it. Luke chapter 3. Now, I'm going to start the genealogy, and I'm going to skip to the end, because there are something like 77 names, okay? And it's probably no more edifying for you to hear it than it is for me to read it, unless you just sit and think about all these names and all that's involved in their lives. So verse 23 of Luke 3, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Malchi. And so he begins, starting with Jesus, going back one generation at a time, earlier and earlier and earlier in history. And you'll notice that in verses 37 and 38, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. He goes all the way back to the beginning of biblical record in Genesis chapter 1. The son of God. And the fact that he throws that in there uh, ties this genealogy to the book of Genesis and chapter 5 and verse 1 where uh, if you want to look at that and notice how clear is the parallel between them, then we're going to look at one more thing in the early chapters of Genesis. Luke wrote this genealogy in a just, it's a genius um, development of his theme. Notice Genesis chapter 5 and verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of of God. He created them male and female. He created them, or he blessed them, and he named them man in the day when they were created. Where did Adam come from? He came from God. Luke wants to make sure that we think about that. Also, if you will notice in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. That really is the same words translated in chapter 5. This is the generations of the heavens and the earth. 
This is a phrase that Moses used 10 times in the, gospel, in the book of Genesis to introduce the sections of the book. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of Terah. These are the generations of, these are the generations of. 10 times he uses that outline in the book of Genesis. Look how Luke opens his genealogy in Luke 3, 23. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. The phraseology, while it doesn't always come out in the English, is very similar to Genesis, but it's even more clear in Matthew's genealogy. I want you to take a few minutes and go back. We'll do some comparison between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy. Matthew chapter 1. The record, this is Matthew 1.1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and so on it goes. These are the generations. This is the genealogy, the record. It's the same kind of phraseology we find in the book of Genesis. These writers want us to know that they're not making this stuff up. They're continuing the accounts given to us by God in the very early records of man. Now, before we come back and say anything else about the Gospels, let's talk about source material for these genealogies. Where did they get their information from? Well, we know, number one, they got some of it from the Old Testament, from the books of Moses. But that goes back to the question that we can ask in the book of, of uh, Genesis. How did Moses know about all those generations that lived before him? Because we are told that they didn't have an alphabet back then. So they may not have had written records. I'm not convinced myself that we know when the alphabet was first used. I think it's very, very early. I wouldn't be surprised to find out uh, that there was writing before Noah, but that's never been proved. It wouldn't surprise me. If there was no writing, who was keeping track of all those generations? Now, it is possible that God simply by revelation gave Moses that information. That's always possible. God can do that. But at the same time, I really believe there's a very strong um, evidence and strong indication in Scripture that these genealogies and this history was passed down by oral means through generation after generation after generation. Now, that wouldn't work very well today. Tell me something today, I probably won't be able to repeat it to you tomorrow. But have you, do you remember how long people lived before the, book of, or before the flood of Noah? Like 900 years? Like they lived to see seven generations? Okay, so like you get to see your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather who was, who's 900, you have his 925th birthday this week, so you go to the party, and he's telling the same old stories. That some of the people in the room have heard for 800 years, 700 years, 600 years, 500 years, 400 years. Do you think they might have the ability to remember some of those stories? Not only that, imagine this. Based on the numbers of Genesis, if you were sitting here in this room tonight and you had the opportunity to turn and talk to a person next to you who was born 950 years ago, and they said to you, 
I remember talking with one of my ancestors, and he was telling me about what happened in 350 A.D. You hearing one person tell you that they had an eyewitness from 350 A.D. That is the kind of numbers we're talking about. With the combination of longevity and stories repeated over and over and over through history, uh, there's, there's no doubt in my mind that there were very accurate records among the early peoples of the human race. And we, we can go into a lot more discussion about that, but it's not necessary right now. Now, I want to say a general word about genealogies in the Gospels. We have two extensive genealogies, one in Matthew, one in Luke. We're going to take a few minutes and put them side by side tonight. But it's my observation and my, my um, idea that every one of the Gospels has a necessary genealogy for the purpose of the gospel. You say, but pastor, there aren't genealogies in Mark and John. I submit to you that there are appropriate genealogies in both of those books. Matthew wrote to the Jewish people and to the Jewish churches to present to them Christ their king and to remind them of the kingdom message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he puts in a kingly genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. He opens his book with it, just like First Chronicles opens with three chapters of nothing but names. If you need something to read to go to sleep tonight, try that. Over here is Luke. He's writing to the Gentiles and to the Greeks, to the Greek churches, to encourage them to understand and to preach the gospel that Jesus is the Son of Man. He came to die for all mankind. And so he gives us a genealogy, not based on Jewish emphasis of kingly tradition. He traces the physical, genealogical paternity of Jesus all the way back to Adam, but of course Jesus had no father. We'll get back to that. He uses Mary's father as the jump off point. Well, that leaves Mark. Mark presented Jesus Christ to the Roman world as a servant. Who cares where a servant came from? The only question for a servant is, does he do what he's asked to do? And so you have Mark telling us immediately Jesus went and did this. Straight away he went and did that. And he is constantly shown as the obedient servant. No one cares where a slave came from. Does he do his job? That's Mark. He came to give his life a ransom for many, to seek and to serve, give his life a ransom for many. And then there's John, the glorious gospel, presenting Jesus Christ as the Son of God, God himself in the flesh. And his genealogy is in the first couple of verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. How old is Jesus? In the beginning he already was. That's quite a genealogy. That's a divine genealogy, not a human genealogy. But it gets human in verse 14 when it says... He became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. That's genealogy. It's not the same genealogy, not the same kind of genealogy. But I submit to you that thought for your 
consideration. Now, I want to go back to Matthew chapter 1. If I seem like I'm hurrying tonight, it's because I'm hurrying tonight. There's just way, way too much information here. I mean, there's 77 names in Luke alone. We could tell 77 stories tonight, and we'd just be scratching the surface because we read one name, but there's a whole life. Some of them great examples, some of them catastrophes. But if you go to Matthew chapter 1, we've already read the first verse. The records, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Does that sound Jewish? The son of David. Does that sound Jewish? The son of Abraham. Does that sound Jewish? What is Matthew going to emphasize? Who is Jesus? What right does he have to be claimed to claim to be the Messiah? Is he indeed a descendant of David? If he's not, that's the theological term. Is he the son of Abraham? Because if he's not, he's not the real Messiah. So Matthew sets out to give us a genealogy pointed to the Jewish people. There are two different kinds of Hebrew genealogies. One of them is a, literally a tracing of, of genetic lineage through your father. The other kind of a Hebrew genealogy is used in the, was used in the Hebrew culture to establish the legal rights of inheritance to property and to thrones. There were two different kinds of genealogies. This is that second kind of genealogy. In this kind of genealogy, it's not surprising to find an occasional generation skipped over. As long as the persons that are mentioned have the direct line of inheritance, it doesn't matter how many generations you skip over as long as that line is being traced. Okay? For instance, you might meet somebody and, and they say to you, my ancestors were on the Mayflower. Well, that's pretty cool. Well, if they tell you their, their great-great-grandmother their great was, you know, Nancy Jones, yeah, that's not so impressive. But if Nancy Jones came from somebody who was on the Mayflower, they, they jump right to the Mayflower because that's what you know. That's what's impressive. That's what's important in the conversation. And so it's, it's not at all... Uh, unusual for these, these uh, genealogies to skip people. You'll notice that Matthew's genealogy starts with the oldest, Abraham, in verse 2, and moves through a series of offspring from the earliest to the latest, ending in verse 16 with Joseph, the husband of Mary. You'll also notice, as you read through this, something very unusual in an ancient genealogy, and that is that there are four women who are mentioned. That is only in Luke. There are no women, including Mary, mentioned. Mary is not mentioned in Luke. Including Mary's name uh, in verse 16, there are five women mentioned. Only one of these women... Uh, only one of these women was a Jewess, and that's Bathsheba in verse 6. 
Three of the four women were women who were part of accounts of immorality in the Old Testament. And Ruth, the wonderful story of Ruth in the book of Ruth, a Moabitess, she herself was not an immoral woman, but we all know that the Moabites came as a result of an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. Matthew includes for the Jewish people a reminder that God's grace has been for other people as well. Right in the very opening passage of Matthew, he wants the Jews to understand the gospel is not just for the Jews. It never has been just for the Jews. It's an interesting, interesting way to bring that in. I want you to look at verse 16. <clears throat> um, jo uh, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Jacob was the father of Joseph. This is the legal right of inheritance to the throne of David, and Joseph was directly in line. He was the husband of Mary. And then it says, by whom Jesus was born. And the word by whom is very specifically, intentionally, in the feminine gender in the New Testament writing. The Greeks had masculine, feminine, and neuter spellings for their nouns and pronouns. This is a feminine pronoun, so it's directly referring to Mary, not Joseph. Matthew is saying, Jesus did not come by Joseph, just by that feminine pronoun. By whom Jesus came, not Joseph. See, this is a legal genealogy, not, not a genetic genealogy. And then it says, by whom Jesus was born. That's a passive verb. Mary gave birth to Jesus, but she was not an active participant in the conception. God conceived the child in her by miraculous divine work. We have in front of us a statement of the incarnation of Jesus Christ that Matthew is going to go on and explain with some of the actual stories of how it happened. Some of the only incarnation stories we have. He is taken by this amazing concept that God, God became man. He became human somehow, not, not through normal parentage. And yet, Jesus had all the rights as if it were normal parentage. And so, in verse 17, we go on then, and he says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14, from David to Babylon, 14, from Babylon to Messiah, 14 generations. Um, this is not a strict genealogy that includes every generation which I mentioned. We know, in fact, that there were more than 14 generations between David and the deportation to Babylon. Up in verse 8, it says, Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, when in fact Joram was the great-great-grandfather of Uzziah. There are three generations skipped. So how come Matthew says there are 14 in verse 17? There's one key word in this sentence that makes a difference. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. 
I am presently listing 14 generations. He didn't say there were 14 generations. He is giving a legal document, a legal genealogy, not an historical record of descendancy. He's writing a legal document here. This type of genealogy that I mentioned to establish legal rights was not a strict, tightly factual chronology. It was a thematic chronology. In the middle of this um, genealogy of Matthew, and this is partly why we're spending some time here, we actually find the reason for Luke's genealogy is because there's a problem in Matthew's genealogy. Uh, it is a it is a problem for how Jesus is going to inherit the throne. And that is that in verse 11, Josiah became the father of Jeconiah. Jeconiah is also called Coniah. And I want you, if you will, to go back to Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 30. Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 30. You can read uh, Jeremiah 21, 22, and 23 on your own time. It is a scathing rebuke of the failure of the kings of Jerusalem, of Judah, at the time uh, near the end of the empire. And the last of those kings is in verse 24 of Jeremiah 22. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Coniah, or Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, even though he were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. And I will give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life, into the hand of those whom you dread, even to the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. This is God speaking to one of his kings in Judah. Pretty severe language. But as for the land to which they desire to return, they will not return to it. You are all going to, all of you that are here listening to my voice, Jeremiah says, you're all going to die in that land. You're not going to come back. Verse 28, is this man Kaniah a despised, shattered jar, or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land that they had not known? O oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless. I think he had seven sons. This doesn't sound like good news. Write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. No descendant of Jeconiah will ever sit on the throne. Well, that's a problem. Except that Matthew is not telling us that Jesus is a descendant of Jeconiah. Jeconiah happens to be the last man who sat on the throne of David in the kingdom of Israel ever. He was the last king. There has never been a king in Israel on the throne of David since. But Matthew says, but there's one who has the right. And you'll notice, Jesus had no physical children. He's the last. He's the only. 
with the right to rule. Hmm. Okay. But Jesus has to be a descendant of David. Because only the seed of David can rule on the throne. We have a problem. And Luke there picks up the story. So let's turn to Luke chapter 3. In Luke chapter 3, after the birth narratives and so on, after the record of his baptism and before the record of his temptation, we have the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Luke is establishing for us the qualifications of Christ for ministry. And one of those qualifications is that he has to be a descendant of David. But Luke also has in mind, Luke was writing primarily to Gentile readers, but we can't overlook the fact that he also was very mindful of his Jewish audience and of the impact of this upon the Jewish people. And so I think in one sense, Luke was trying to write for two audiences, but he primarily makes this genealogy of a Jewish man, he turns it into a Greek genealogy. It's not quite like a Hebrew genealogy. Because for one thing, he doesn't start with the oldest, ancient, and come to the more recent. He starts with Jesus, and he goes back in history. He also goes farther back in history than a Jew would necessarily have need to have repeated. Everybody knows where Abraham came from. But the Gentiles don't know this stuff. So Luke is answering the Jewish concern of Jesus being a descendant of David physically, but he's also answering the Greek concern and his desire to present Jesus as the Son of Man who died for the sins of the world, who came for everyone. He wasn't just a descendant of Adam. He goes farther back. He's not just the descendant of, of, I mean of Abraham. He's not just the descendant of Abraham. He's a descendant of Adam. He's just like all the rest of us in that sense. He's human. All right? So this is obviously a different genealogy from the son of David. Whereas Matthew 1.16 said that Joseph's father was Jacob, if you'll notice in verse 30, uh, 23, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. Well, Joseph didn't have two fathers, one named Jacob and one named Eli. He had one father. The Greek, uh, the Greek uh, idea of a genealogy was to follow the line of the father, the genetic line of the father. That's why we call it a genealogy. You probably already figured that out, but I just thought I'd throw that in there. It's, it's the genetic line of the father. But the problem is, Jesus didn't have a genetic father on earth. How do you put that into a Greek genealogy? How do you get the father of someone who doesn't have a father? You back up one step and say, well, who was the father of the mother? Because all of 
the, the human genes from any human instrumentation that Jesus had came from his mother Mary. Whatever other, we're stepping into the mystery of God's union with, with humanity here, and, and we don't understand it. Where the rest of those genes came from was God did it. That's all I know. But, but humanly, his genes came from Mary, what human genes he had. So if we're going to trace the fatherhood of somebody, we have to go back to Mary and Mary's father. Thus we have Eli, the father of Mary. You'll notice verse 23 says, as being as was supposed the son of Joseph. Luke does not say that Jesus was the son of Joseph, does he? It looked like it. People thought maybe that was it, unless they knew the story. And so in the mind of Luke, he's presenting Jesus here through the fatherhood of his mother. And then he launches back into a complete genealogy all the way back to Adam. In the Greek genealogies, they tried to give a full and complete list of every generation that they knew. And they would often use the word the son of for a very strict father-son connection, not the broader concept like we saw uh, Joram begat Uzziah and skip four generations, three generations. This was a, the, the Greeks used a more strict connection of father to son. This, so this is a list of procreation. This is not a list for legal rights. G, uh, Jesus did not inherit a legal right to the throne from his mother Mary. Um, because that came through Solomon originally. And uh, Jesus' ancestor on his mother's side was one of Solomon's brothers, who was never a king himself. So it has to be a true genealogy of the birth parents, but of course, being virgin-born, Jesus only has one birth parent, so we go to Eli in verse 23. They also notice here that Mary's name is not listed the Greeks would not want to see a woman's name in a genealogy. So Luke leaves it out. He knows the Greek mind. So he leaves out Mary's name, and he leaves out any other female names along the way. <clears throat> One of the things that you'll notice if you put these two genealogies together, there's only a small section of these genealogies that actually matches because from Jesus, in Matthew, from Jesus back to David is a line through Solomon. But in Luke, from Jesus back to David is a line through Nathan, another son of David. So they don't match. All the way back to David, nothing matches. The only thing that matches is from David back to Abraham, except there's one difference. Luke does give us one more name in that genealogy that we didn't know about from the Old Testament. But there are things in the New Testament that, about the Old Testament that we didn't know in the Old Testament until the New Testament tells us, so that's not entirely surprising. But when you go, of course, uh, Matthew didn't go back before Abraham, but when Luke did, of course, Matthew didn't contain that information. So most of the information is in Luke is not in Matthew's genealogy. This is not a mistake. It's a difference in emphasis. It is a difference in the purpose of the genealogy. I want us to take 
um, just a couple minutes and, and, and reflect on the last verse of this genealogy, and that's verse 38. As I said, there's 77, if I, I counted, if I counted right, including Jesus, there's 77 generations here. <clears throat> so that's a lot of history and a lot of stories. So if, you're, if you want to read more, read your Old Testament, right? That'll take you a little while. Verse 38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. He traces the genealogy of Jesus back to the original man. Jesus is the son of man. He is the son of Adam, just like you and just like me. He was fully qualified to be our substitute because he was one of us. And yet he wasn't one of us. He was God who became one of us. He was more than just one of us, but he was one of us, the son of Adam. And then he adds this information that the son of Adam was the son of of God. This is not the only time this is referred to in Scripture. Adam was the son of God, meaning where did Adam come from? He came from God. We're back to Genesis 1. Adam came from God. Okay, where did Adam come from? He came from God. Let me get this straight. God became a man who came from Adam who came from God. Right. Amazing. Amazing that the God of creation would stoop down to become one of us. I think it's Psalm 113 that says that God has to humble himself to look down at his creation. Far more than that, he humbled himself and became one of us. And then Paul in Philippians 2 takes it farther. Oh, it's worse than that. He not only became one of us, he became a despised one. He became a servant, and a servant declared guilty. Though pure and innocent, he became one declared guilty for us. He traced the lineage of Jesus all the way back to Adam. And in doing so, Luke has encompassed the entire scope of Old Testament history, not only the history of the Jewish people, but the history of humanity, and presents Jesus Christ as the one who can answer the need. Here's the one who's qualified. He's qualified physically, he's qualified genetically, He's qualified ritually. He's been baptized. He's, he's obeyed the law. Now he's going to be qualified righteously by withstanding the temptations of the devil in the next chapter, and he's ready to launch out into public ministry to demonstrate the fullness of his character and the person of God in the flesh. An amazing way to put together an introduction to a book. But there's one more thing that Luke is doing here. We don't have time to go into it in depth. 
this tonight. But there's something that Luke is doing here, I think, to his, uh, for his broader uh, Gentile Greek audience, and that is he is destroying Greek philosophy with one phrase. The son of Adam, the son of God. For you see, the Greeks did not believe that man came from the God of heaven like the Bible says. There were a number of different mythologies and legends and religions uh, floating around in the time of Luke and in the New Testament era. But one of the general, tr what general ideas among the Greeks was that there were gods in prehistory, and uh, the, 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 one of the gods, um, uh, Zeus, begot uh, a son whose name was Zagreus, or later called Dionysius, or Dionysus. And then there was another group of wicked creatures who were enemies of Zeus, and they were called the Titans. They were a very powerful race of creatures or beings who were before man. Man wasn't around yet. These, these Titans were powerful, gigantic beings on the earth, and the gods were in the heavens, and there was a battle between the gods and the titans, and Zeus got so upset and mad with the titans that he finally zapped them with the lightning bolt, destroyed them all, burned them up. And out of the wickedness of the titans, out of the ashes arose the human body, the original man. And thus began a concept in Greek thinking that the spirit part of us is good and the bodily part of us is from an evil origin and that as long as we're in these evil bodies we are trapped and that that the real answer to man's need is for us to escape the body and to be go back into the mind and the spirit existence and this is why the worship of the temples of, of the first century. This is why the, the temples, they, there was drunkenness, there was carousing, there were drugs, there was prostitution, there were all kinds of ways of, of, of filling yourself with so much ecstasy that you would basically get out of your mind. You would be out of your mind with the worship of the gods, and the more out of your mind you were, the more, the more you became like the gods. I know this doesn't sound like it makes any sense, but this is what they believed, okay? Luke says, no, Adam did not rise from the ashes of the Titans. He was a man created by God. And as a man, he is one of us. But he demonstrates very clearly in this book that Jesus was not taken with the evil, wicked passions of the rest of mankind. So it is not inherently human to be a sinner. This is contrary to Greek thinking. You've got to be out of, you've got to get rid of the body, die and go into another life. You might have to do that over and over again before you're finally released from the body and the wickedness and all of this. And, and Luke is going to say, no, 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 my friend. God created Adam and Adam had a son and he 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 had a son. And and we have Jesus here. He's the Son of Man. He's human. He's fully human. But he's wholly divine. He's perfect. The Greeks didn't know what to do with the God who became a man. 
That didn't fit in. This is a gospel they've never heard. But it's a wonderful gospel. It's the true gospel. The one God of heaven became a man. And he lived among us. And he demonstrated fully that he was God. He demonstrated fully that he was human. And he demonstrated fully that he is qualified to lay down his life, to pay the price of sin, and destroy the power of sin for us. That's Luke. That's his gospel. What an introduction he gives us. What a way to get us started. You and I can be very thankful that God just didn't send some angel. He himself came down. He became one of us. Folks, we're trying to explain things that we don't understand. We're trying to understand things that are beyond us. These are in the mind of God, but he has expressed them to us in words that we can understand. We can understand some. Lord, help our misunderstandings. Lord, direct us as we study the word. I trust you'll dig into the book of Luke and find it a great encouragement to you as we go on. Father in heaven, thank you tonight for Dr. Luke, a man with an amazing mind, an amazing grasp of Jewish history, an amazing grasp of the Greek people and the Greek culture, and an amazing ability to minister to both at the same time. Thank you, Father, for the inspiration work of the Holy Spirit using Luke and Matthew and Mark and John. Father, we pray that the same Spirit would teach us as we open these pages and read the book. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.